0: Hey, Radio Rothbard fans. The Mises Institute has a new free book for you. Dr. Guido Holzman's How Inflation Destroys Civilization. Learn how inflation isn't only making us poorer. It's harming our culture, mental well-being, and the moral foundations of civilization itself. Get your free copy today at mises.org slash
1: rothpodfree. Hey guys, this is Though Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and if you're listening to the show, you're no doubt familiar with Human Action, Ludwig von Mises' Masterpiece. This is the 75th anniversary of its publication, and in honor of that, we are holding a very special event on May 16th through the 18th, a conference dedicated to this very important book. We're going to have scholars from all around the world coming in, including Bob Murphy, Guido Holzman, Joe Salerno, Tom DeLorenzo, a whole list of all-star Austrian scholars. Now, as a Radio Rothbard listener, we've got a special opportunity for you. If you go to mises.org slash RR raffle, that's double R raffle, uh, you can enter in to get a free admission to this very special conference. Also, if you're a student, we've got scholarships available for you at the event site, uh, mises.org slash events. So, I hope to see you guys there and now enjoy the rest of the show
0: welcome back to radio rothbard i'm ryan mcmakin with the mises institute and with me today as usual is my co-host though bishop and we also have one of our columnists connor o'keefe and connor has a weekly column at the mises institute Often some of our more popular columns, and uh, one of his recent columns covers the issue of Julian Assange. Uh, Assange, if you will recall, was a whistleblower, published facts about the U.S. government. The U.S. government didn't like being embarrassed and exposed, and has uh, launched a uh, I don't know a legal terror campaign against Assange ever since. And Assange has uh, attempted to escape prosecution by the American state in a variety of ways. But in the last few weeks, it just it's uh, it just moves ever closer toward Assange, who's presently in a prison in the United Kingdom, uh, also a country also known as America's lapdog, um, where he is uh, just rotting there until he exhausts all of his attempts to avoid extradition to the United States, where he could then be prosecuted for a variety of uh, laws under the uh, Espionage Act, which is itself a BS law from World War I, and uh, really just thrown in a, a, a federal hole for decades, um, all for just relating facts about the US government. So, let's uh, look a little bit at the case here, because it's always good to be reminded Uh, about what the reality is behind the Julian Assange case and how this could happen really to any American who attempts to exercise his or her First First Amendment rights by sharing journalistic information about the U.S. government and simply saying things. Uh, This is old sort of stuff that you would expect under like King James in absolutist England. Um, But this is the regime we now... Live under, and so just for listeners, a lot of the information we'll be discussing uh, relates to a February twentieth article by Connor called "The Outrageous Persecution of Julian Assange." We'll link that in the uh, the description, but we'll talk a little bit more in detail about this uh, right now. So, uh, Connor, just for for people who've forgotten some of the details, I mean, wh- what are the basics that we need to keep in mind about? The, both the persecution and the prosecution of Julian Assange. And how did we get to where we are now uh, with with Assange? And, and uh, why is he in a British prison uh, sitting there and waiting to be extradited to the United States?
2: Right. That's exactly what I was trying to do with this piece. I think uh, what I try to do a lot with my columns every week is to sort of ta- like zoom way out and look at the bigger picture context behind what's in the news that week. And in this case, it's like, he's been um, in a British prison for, I think about five years now. And, you know, we'll occasionally get these stories where there will be a hearing or he'll be appealing. And so people will be talking about it for a bit and then it'll kind of go back out of the news until the decision and then, you know, the next hearing and so on. Um, but I think the, uh, the, the multi-decade uh, context behind um, why he's there is important. And so I wanted to just lay that out quickly in that article. Um, and so I kind of start with uh, WikiLeaks was founded, um, that's his organization, founded in 2006, but it really was sort of rocketed to the global stage in 2010 when um, he or his organization published um, a tremendous amount of leaked material from uh, mainly the national security foreign policy apparatus of the federal government. Um, It's sort of known now as the Afghan war logs, the Iraq war logs, and the diplomatic cable leak. Um, And uh, an important uh, detail that um, uh, is worth stressing is that um, Julian Assange was not the whistleblower in this case, and has not been the whistleblower in any of these cases. He was the publisher of information that was leaked to him. and that's important for, you know, the case that's being brought against him now, but uh, that, you know, it, it contained a tremendous amount of very damning material for uh, sort of the, the narrative of the war on terror that um, Washington had been trying to perpetuate. At the time, there was evidence of um, war crimes um, and then also official efforts to cover those war crimes up. Um, The most famous is what's called the collateral murder video, which was like a 38 minute video um, taken from an Apache helicopter um, in Baghdad in 2007, where um, the pilots, or I think it was two helicopters, but video from one helicopter. uh, They killed, I think it was like 11 or 12 unarmed men, two of whom were uh, Reuters journalists, photojournalists there. Um, and then, like a van sh- pulls up to try to help some of the wounded, and they shoot that too. And there were two children inside that get seriously injured. And uh, so th- this was the type of thing that I mean, you know that that specific case is sort of what it's famous for. And you know, it was a video you could actually sit down and watch. A lot of it was just kind of bureaucratic uh, cables and um, so forth. but um, it, it was very much going against how, The government wanted to portray the actions of the U.S. over in Iraq, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom and and such. And uh, so the government was obviously very upset about this leak. Um, They started exploring options. But at this point, 2010, Obama's in the White House. They're exploring options for how to basically go after this guy and go after this organization. But what they ran into was um, what I've heard the the. Obama team called the New York Times problem, which was that there was nothing they could try to charge Julian Assange with, that they couldn't also charge, you know, all these reporters that the New York Times were doing, because he wasn't the one that actually went and leaked out this material. he never signed any, you know, it's not an NDA there, it's a lot more serious in the national security world, but um, there was nothing illegal about what he had done. He had just published this stuff. And so they sat on, they, they didn't charge him back in 2010. Uh, and then um, I think, crucially, it's important to, uh, to bring in the context of 2016. Um, Assange and WikiLeaks, they publish all this material that made Hillary Clinton and the Hillary Clinton campaign look very bad. And um, I think that's significant because that really turned a lot of his previous fans against him. I think still to this day, he's blamed by a lot on the left or the liberal left um, for working with the Russians, kind of against evidence, um, that, uh, to move the needle uh, in Trump's favor. Um, and so a lot of the people that had been coming to his defense before kind of soured on him. And then a year later in 2017, WikiLeaks, they published what are called the Vault 7 documents, which was all this information detailing the CIA's cyber warfare capabilities. And there was some very dramatic stuff in there about how not only do they have the ability to monitor a lot of consumer electronics, but they have the ability to remotely control them as well. Um, And apparently this leak just infuriated uh, specifically Mike Pompeo, Trump's head of the CIA at the time. And um, so crucially, this was the time, it was after this leak in 2017 that the federal government sets its sights back on Julian Assange. And so one year later, in 2018, um, they indict him on a charge for uh, computer intrusion or something like that, essentially hacking, uh, which is something that they had not tried to charge him on before, because it was a flimsy case. Um, And then a year later, in 2019, uh, I, I don't know. The, I don't remember the details of this, but I think there was a some change in the Ecuadorian regime. Ecuador had been a very good, um, uh, had a, a very generous um, asylum policy. So uh, Julian Assange was held up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Ecuador revoked that his asylum asylum status in twenty nineteen. He's kicked out, is arrested by London police, and then the U.S. uh, indict him on 17 more charges uh, under the Espionage Act. And so for the last five years, the U.S. has been trying to extradite him back to the U.S. to face those charges. um, And Assange and his team have been appealing that. And in 2021, um, one of the, uh, I guess, justices or judges of the high court in the U.K. um, ruled that there was... A risk to Assange's safety being extradited, not really for any of the reasons that his team were uh, arguing, but because I think it had something to do with his mental health. But basically, it it elongated this whole process, which is why it's been five years later. And uh, it only now starts to be wrapping up. But uh, what what was likely his final extradition hearing happened last week, Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, And we'll see it. We're still awaiting... decision at uh, the time of recording but i I think it's important to remember that broader context when sort of reading about these events in the news and then i think emphasizing that
1: as well is that you know again assange has been in the news for you know almost 15 years now and and it's important to get to to separate the obama era treatment of assange which was bad i mean he was the nsa put him on on their their manhunt list um he was classified as kind of a, a foreign Terrorist entity, essentially. This is where you had the Snowden reveals, you had the Bradley Manning uh, leaks, and things like that. And then the irony of where Assange actually, for a period of time, becomes uh, uh, normalized with the American right during the Trump campaign when he was hitting Hillary. I mean, you had Sean Hannity, who was calling for him to be executed and drawn and quartered and whatnot. Um, you know during the the you know the early days of WikiLeaks is out there talking about Julian Assange it's like oh I'd like to do an interview with Julian Assange right he becomes this like sort of normalized uh, almost like a, a an Alex Jones type figure someone who was kind of considered crazy but was now kind of convenient um, riding the Trump wave and then again it's it's Trump's own administration it is Mike Pompeo that after those those vault seven disclosures you know, goes full nuclear war on it, where you have America really leveraging its diplomatic processes, um, again, you know, helping change Ecuador's very accommodative policies, going after the UK and pressuring them for extradition rights. So that there is really kind of two stages here. One is Obama-era Julian Assange. One is Trump-era uh, Julian Assange. You're gonna, the, the ironic thing being Julian Assange helped. This, the the Trump administration kind of be in existence. And again, I, I, for for my, I I had forgotten that aspect of it um, until this uh, uh, trial had come up because, again, we've, we've, he's, he's been such a kind of a part of this landscape for so long. But yeah, it was was the escalation of the Trump administration that really brought us to this point right now.
0: Yeah. Excuse me. And lest we ever think that the Trump administration has some sort of principled opposition to the US regime, I mean, we can see that as soon as uh, Trump came into power in 2017, immediately his administration started lobbying uh, to more aggressively go after Julian Assange. Um, with the big change that had happened in uh, Ecuador at the time was that the old president, Rafael Correa, went out, and Correa was uh, kind of an anti-CIA guy, and he was replaced, you know, he, his term was over, uh, and he was replaced by a guy named Lenin Moreno. And uh, by early 2017, Moreno was uh, talking with Paul Manafort. He had a meeting with Mike Pence, uh, met with uh, Pompeo, and all of these people started uh, lobbying him to to kick Assange out of the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, just really committed to prosecuting this guy. Why? Uh, because he annoyed Mike Pompeo, uh, and that was basically it. And uh, a lot of it. Uh, it is also important to remember that remember that uh, one reason that he ended up in uh, <laughs> prosecuted in the first place was they couldn't come up with something related to espionage. So there was all this stuff about how oh had Assange like been involved in some sort of sexual assault uh, in Sweden and all of this stuff. I mean, they just threw everything they could at it. And since the federal government has basically limitless funds, they can just tie you up in court forever and ever and make your life a living hell that way. So even if ultimately they don't get a conviction, so they extradite him to the U S and, and somehow they don't get a conviction, which I guess will depend heavily on what sort of judge they get. Um, then in the end though. The the U.S. government made its point, which is, if you make us look bad, you will have to spend a decade or more of your life on the run trying to avoid extradition. You're not an American citizen, by the way. That's always been a central part of this, is that Assange isn't an American citizen, hadn't committed any of his quote-unquote crimes on American soil. And yet the U.S. government claims the right to prosecute any journalist anywhere on planet Earth at any time. For making the U.S. government look bad, uh, and they will spare no expense. Those, they'll, they'll had they not been able to get Moreno to kick uh, Assange out of the uh, embassy when they had, they would have just kept sending more lobbyists to him, spending more money. Who knows what they would have bribed him with in terms of free money for Ecuador? Uh, it's just, and it's all your money as an American taxpayer, of course. But they don't care. They've got all the time in the world, all the money in the world, and they've sent the message. We will go after you. We will make your life hell if uh, you exercise your God-given freedom of speech, which is just protected by the First Amendment. It's not created by the First Amendment. And we'll go after you. I I think they've made their point. They've managed to silence a lot of people. Uh, And just to circle back and, and note that one point you made, right, is that Uh, if we compare the treatment of Assange to other real whistleblowers, right? Assange is just publisher. He published some information, no different from the New York times. Let's look at the case of Daniel Ellsberg, right? Ellsberg actually took that information from the Rand corporation, uh, and gave it to, uh, newspapers in the United States to publish and they published it. Well, Ellsberg never went to prison for that. And the newspapers never, no one was prosecuted there either so they invented of course the united states became way way more a police state uh after the iraq war than it had been in the 70s um and so you can see just the the total distinction in treatment that occurred here if ellsberg never went to prison there's zero reason for assange to ever go to prison Uh, and if no one at the new york times or the washington post has ever been prosecuted for publishing that sort of information then neither should assange it's just it's so clearly a political hack job where they want to go after somebody who they don't like uh, and have limitless resources to do it. So this should s- just scare the hell really out of any American uh, who has seen how this has happened, and because it's clear that any reasonable person would have looked at the federal law, looked at the treatment of it, of this issue in the past and concluded, oh, well, I guess I'm able to exercise these rights as a journalist. And that's not proven to be the case. And perhaps the most despicable of all is just the way that modern-day journalists have abandoned Assange and not uh, not published basically weekly articles about the treatment of Assange and how despicable it is. Instead, uh, journalists, you know, the the establishment journalist type who laughably pretend that they're critics of the regime. They, are, they say things like, oh, well, Assange isn't a real journalist because he didn't work for one of our organizations, or he didn't have an American press pass or some other gibberish that they like to say. And so they're. It, it's just absurd how they protect their own interests as journalists, and uh, they just throw to the wolves anyone who uh, makes their precious American regime look bad uh, and calls into question one of uh, America's wars, which, of course... The American journalists supported from minute one. They uh, uh, had always supported the war in Iraq, bent over backwards to make the Bush administration look good. So, of course, we shouldn't be surprised that they end up turning on Julian Assange as well. So it's really just been quite remarkable just how the regime, both sides of it, the Trump side, the Hillary side, and the media have all been in lockstep about condemning Assange. The only exceptions, of course, have been libertarians like at the Mises Institute or hardcore left people like at Jacobin. And there's actually been some really good articles about Assange at Mm -hmm. Jacobin. But that's just an old remnant of the the new left from the 60s and 70s that uh, had come to Ellsberg's side and which had defended uh, whistleblowing and leaks back then because they actually had a principled opposition to war which modern journalists and the modern left doesn't have at all so you can see if you just delve into the history at all just how trumped up and uh,
2: how fake these charges are against assange yeah another one of my favorite cases of hypocrisy is um thinking back to the 2019 impeachment of donald trump and how the cia official who was working at the white house um, eric charamella or whatever. Uh, blew the whistle about this Trump phone call with the Ukrainian President Zelensky and then turned to this whole thing about how quid pro quo and he's not, um, you know, he's holding up aid to Ukraine to get them to investigate the Bidens and he's impeached over this and how the press and the, you know, members of Congress acted about this whistleblower. I, yesterday I was like reading back up on this to remember it. I couldn't find his name anywhere. They were so careful, not publish this guy's name and still it's been almost five years and it's like scrubbed from the internet i had to dig deep nobody is like willing to bring his name up i was almost i was kind of uh wondering if i shouldn't bring his name up but that was more about not being able to pronounce his last name I, (laughs) i still don't get it but um yeah and i think like your point about the journalist not coming to his defense there's there's been a little bit recently it's like finally after four years um, I think the might have been the New York Times and the Guardian published an open letter like ten months ago or something. I don't really remember the specifics on that, and it's kind of like okay, well, it's about time. But I think um, there's like like Rothbard often talked about uh, the press. He would break it up into the respectable press and whatever the opposite of that would be. Um, and I think that's like the clear the the important distinction here. You have at the New York Times, at you know, the Washington Post, you have all these journalists who, yeah, on paper, if Julian Assange is charged for obtaining and publishing classified material, that's what they do often. But it's like they really, they do understand that, no, they're not actually at risk of being charged for that because they're not doing what Assange is doing. They're not actually embarrassing the US regime with their journalism. They're a lot more the the, the, I call them the media lapdogs rather than the watchdogs. They are. And I think that's an important um, point for Americans to understand uh, more than most that um, media censorship or controlling kind of the narrative out there does not just take the form of. Censoring and beating back the watchdogs, but if you can really transform the journalists uh, exist out there, you know, usually through granting access or uh, you know press passes or invitations to you know the press briefing room and all these things, that that's a very effective way of controlling the narrative as well. And so, it, in my article, I kind of chalk all this up to a song like the real reason they're going after Assange, just because he. Embarrassed the political class. But I think that almost might be an understatement. I think really it's, it's not even just embarrass, embarrassment. It's that Assange and kind of people like him, people outside of the respectable media that they have some influence over, really risk their whole monopoly over the information space, uh, really risk their ability to frame things like the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, or the election of Donald Trump in 2016 as, you know, whatever they want, you know, liberating Iraq, uh, you know, Trump as a Russian stooge. Um, That is threatened when there are alternative viewpoints out there. That's one of the amazing things about the internet, uh, probably more so than any other type of information technology. It's really broken that monopoly, but Assange is, um, in a lot of ways, he, kind of personifies that. And um, so by going after him, it's not only really that they're punishing this one guy, but it's it has, a, I think, a cooling effect uh, on everybody else. And in fact, I, I don't remember the specific report, but interestingly, there was, um, I think in 2011, there was an internal Department of Defense memo that was talking about WikiLeaks. And what it uh, concluded was that the most effective way to go after WikiLeaks was to uh, go to, to put in an extra effort to find the whistleblowers that would be you know sending these leaked documents out and to really really hammer them because you wanted to dissuade people going forward from reaching out to WikiLeaks if they you know had uh, documents that they thought the public should be aware of. And so I think there's a lot to what you were saying about. Um, the the potential that all this pain of you know five years of Belmarsh prison, what's often called the the, the UK's Gitmo, um, and you know just endless extradition trials and appeals and stuff that this is the point here is that to make this as painful for him as possible. I mean, the guy's in terrible shape. He went he's gone years without sunlight. Um, he was in a, a closet in the Ecuadorian embassy um, for years. He's very sick. He couldn't make it to the hearing last week because he broke a rib from coughing too much. And th- like j- just the idea that he's going to be uh, kicked back to the U.S., like, like I, I don't really think it's all that politically feasible that he's going to be extradited and then Biden's going to triumphantly like send him away for 175 years. Um, I think that this is the point here to really put him through as much pain and discomfort to dissuade people who will you might even think about daring to do what he did and to really shatter their their monopoly over the narrative.
1: Yeah, he definitely he's 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 a symbol that represents you know the, the the new media environment. And we've seen kind of across the board various examples of the people, the individuals that have built these these larger platforms that allow for the free exchange of information, commerce, et cetera. They are the ones that are targeted in this current environment because the technological advancements, uh, were too Yeah, They overcame a lot of the, uh, they, they, they were adapting faster than the, the law could change in many ways. And, you know, they were adapting the, they were creating, um, you know, you, you could get beyond a lot of the, the t- traditional restraints. Um, you know, needing a, a, a New York Times, for example, to publish information, and and I think in some ways, right, we saw traditional media. Not, not that I ever want to fall into the trap of talking about all the good old days when you know we had real reporters out there. I mean, yeah, look at the, the whole history of, of propaganda that's come out of the New York Times. But you know, the 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 corporatization of traditional media. Um, their their willingness to be kind of a a complete a, a mouthpiece, I think that that became stronger in the '90s, going to the 2000s, and so the people that were targeted were again not the people themselves revealing the information, but you know the people that built the platforms like Assange, like Kim.com, um, not necessarily with you know secretive military stuff, but dealing with copyright infringement and the like with uh, his, his upload websites and things like that. Um, obviously, we have the you know we, we have the example of Ross Ulbricht. Um, you know, with, you know, creating a a commerce platform, which, again, not a defense of, you know, some of the exchanges that were going on there. But, you know, what these people were guilty of were simply creating platforms within this new digital age that allowed for easier ways to avoid a lot of the restrictions the state had created or or the ability that state co-opting other outlets had been able to control. And this feeds into this much larger dynamic of, you know, the state pushing back and going after these individuals that have found ways of overcoming the, their own powers, their own tools that they've created to, to restrict certain information. And again, I, th- I think this is why the, the Trump, the, 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 kind of the betrayal of the Trump administration on Assange is so fascinating because it goes to this larger conversation about what does the Trump moment really mean? What does the political shift really mean? Because again, the, the people that, you know, the, the, the you know what Trump represents as a figure, much more than individual and much more than the policy, is this anger at the establishment. It's the anger. It's the suspicion of you're not simply politicians and lobbyists and all those easy cartoon characters, but you know a, a much broader reevaluation of the way citizens think about the CRA, or the CIA, the way that they think about the Pentagon, the, the way that they think about the State Department, the way that they think about you know all of these agencies that you know, had been propagandized for decades as representing us, the people, a lot of the movement that propels Trump over you know, anyone else that can pass a tax cut is that inherent distrust. And yet here you have that movement being able, being able to be co-opted from the inside with people like Pompeo, people like Rick, Rick Rennell, who was the ambassador to Germany um, that helped facilitate um, um, you know making some of the deals with the Ecuadorians to kind of help move this sort of, sort of stuff. And so it goes to kind of the co-option of this much broader distrust of the regime um, still ending up with the consequences that you'd have gotten with, you know, Hillary Clinton or, you know, the political status quo. And, you know, I don't think these tensions are going away anytime soon, right? You still see, you know, the, the triumphant media figure right now on the right is Tucker Carlson looking forward to his interview with Ron Paul very soon, you know, but, but he, he, in many ways is kind of an Assange like figure. You can't really go after him the same way as you can Assange. He is, you know he he has a uh, you know he's an American uh, you know, here in the present, you know he's he's got this big platform. Um, but if 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 he was you know out in a foreign country, um, you know if, if, if he was more vulnerable, if he had a lot less uh, patrons within the United States, you know, a, a lot of what Tucker Carlson is touching on right now would probably lead him in a very similar dynamic. and this is why you have you know the CIA or, or State Department people you know hacking his signal account and things like that. You know, there is there's clearly an audience and support for these dissonant uh, media creators, aggregators, and the like, um, and yet the willingness, the ability to translate that into meaningful form within the system um, seems as far away as It's been a long time.
2: Yeah, I, I'm so fascinated by this whole topic of like of the news media and the press. I think it's something that libertarians need to focus on in a more specific. Uh, In serious way, but like, if it's really that, um, it's the two sides of it. So, like, if you go back, like, sort of the um, uh, the creation myth, the urban legend of the White House press corps is that uh, Teddy Roosevelt, back in 1901, saw some reporters like shivering out in the rain and invited them in, and then you know, reporters started to uh, operate within the walls of the White House, and then they had to build. Um, you know, offices for them. But I think that it, it, I guess that's not factually true. That, that didn't happen. But I think that action of inviting them in is like very central to how uh, the state control over the media works um, in the U.S. today. So like, like I think back to like one example I like was when Biden went to Ukraine Um, this was, I think about a year ago, actually, I think was when that visit happened. But if you remember, he took a train and they had all the windows blocked with curtains. Um, and they had, they invited, I think it was, uh, two New York times photojournalists on board. And what I think is important to stress is that those journalists were not there to observe the trip. They were the entire purpose of the trip. The whole thing was about the optics of Biden going there. And if you read the coverage of the trip, like you couldn't distinguish what the American news media was writing from you know, the White House communications team or the Ukrainian regime. And so it's kind of this mutually beneficial uh, setup that they have, I think, really mastered. But then on the other side of that is if people go the other direction, you need to slam uh, you need to slam them in all the ways you were talking about these people who, yeah, really on paper, they didn't actually really do anything all that wrong. And if, if you listen to the way that the regime talks about how, you know, standing up for principles of democracy and freedom, um, then they're actually doing things right. But by kind of uh, violating that sort of unsaid contract with the press that um, the, the federal government has built up over the last century or so, um, man, you land in their targets. And I think understandably so, like I think they are right to see this as a serious threat. If you just look at the last decade or so, as this monopoly on the information is broken down, like the the changes, the the sweeping political changes that have happened um, across the world, uh, this is all very recent. So things, you know, we're still in the middle of the craziness of it. If you kind of go back to, you know, from like the financial crisis to today Politics the world over has been pretty crazy. I think in large part because of the ways the internet has shattered that Monopoly, Um, and they they still talk about misinformation Disinformation being the biggest threat and I think they're right from their perspective
0: Yeah, I think the The issue you made a little bit earlier too adds an additional uh, element to this which is the (laughs) Anytime you have a whistleblower that uh, we're told is good um, by the legacy media, you can be sure is a pro regime whistleblower. Um, anytime you're told a whistleblower is bad, then they're probably doing something that's critical of the regime. It's it's a pretty lock tight yeah. standard at this point. So, and as you've noted, right? We we they they trot a bow oh, CIA and says X Y Z, and wow, what a what a groundbreaking uh, revelation this is. And it always just ends up. Uh, supporting the regime, and in some cases, it's unclear, and you wonder why Why are we supposed to care what this guy thinks. I'm thinking of the whole space alien thing that happened, uh, I think it was just last year, do you remember this, where all of these like former intelligence people were telling us about, oh yes, well, we actually captured these space aliens, <laughs> and here's all this footage of UFOs, and isn't this amazing, everybody? Look at all this stuff about UFOs. Everybody listened to these, uh, these CIA guys telling us about UFOs. And I'm like, why why are we supposed to care? Why, why is it so important for me to believe in UFOs all of a sudden? And I never really got an answer on that. I just wondered why they, uh, they were, after decades of the government telling us there are no UFOs, suddenly they were really, really interested in all of these regime types telling us that, yes, there are aliens and UFOs. Um, all that did was make me suspicious and wonder why this was suddenly a thing. Um, And you should be suspicious with this sort of thing, right? Fortunately, most Americans seem to not care. I guess they had other things going on. But there's so much noise. Look at this former military guy. Here's what he says about XYZ. You should really, really listen to this guy. But then if somebody says something that's against the regime, suddenly we're supposed to hate that person. Uh, or pretend that they don't exist. And you could see that uh, in, say, for example, the Gonzalo Lira case, which we could contrast with, um, say, any of these pro-regime journalists who were supposed to regard as heroes. Instead, you had Gonzalo Lira in Ukraine, a true uh, journalist trying to uncover dirt. And he was really showing the the Ukrainian regime for what it was which was of course this is a regime that uh, has abolished freedom of religion they're actively shutting down orthodox churches imprisoning priests i mean despicable stuff and uh, also of course there's no freedom of speech in ukraine they've abandoned any idea of elections uh, and, and yet we're, we're told that uh, the way to support democracy is to support this country that has no freedom of speech no freedom of religion and no elections and But that's all just the pro-regime narrative. Gonzalo Lira was in the way of that. He was basically murdered in a Ukrainian prison by the Ukrainian regime. We don't hear anything about this guy. I mean, he's, he's invisible, according to the American media. Then we hear all about Alexei Navalny in Russia, who died recently, probably due to mistreatment also. But we're supposed to fall all over ourselves caring deeply about that. So <clears throat> clearly there's no concern in the establishment media for real journalism, no concern with exposing crimes of states. All that matters is exposing the guys that the establishment media doesn't like and that's the only good kind of journalism in their mind. And so that's just become really I think a standard that we now have to live by is just constantly ask ourselves okay if the if the establishment media likes this person, why? And uh, it's a pretty safe bet that once you sift through all the information, it's because they're saying something that supports the U.S. regime and its current narrative, and that's basically really just a reliable standard for everything.
1: Yeah, you're 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 exactly correct. And you know, again, one of the interesting dynamics of it is that you know you look at Gonzalo, Gonzalo Lira, and again, he he's a he's a very new age. You know, he's kind of a content creator. You know, his most of his material is coming out on YouTube websites. Um, you know, obviously, he he had the you know, the interesting dynamic, and, and it became a very unfortunate d- dynamic of being in Ukraine, you know, during during the war. But you know what we've seen right now, and this is why you know when you you know it's 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 very easy to see just you know, looking at where the conversations are. Um, and I, I think particularly, even even though you know we have this ironic kind of situation right now, where we're dealing with Assange attempted to be extradited to the U, to the U.S. from the U.K. In terms of this broader conversation of the censorship of you know, the crackdown on disinformation on the, the dissident journalists, um, the canary in the coal mine is Europe, because their freedom of speech laws are not as non-existent, right? And you know we are seeing already, right, things like podcasts and social media channels and you know the way that you know social media algor- algorithms can operate. You know the attacks on uh, you know. What Twitter has done with with X, um, you know, that is where the drumbeat is the most loudest within the West. I mean, we can have a whole lot you know, larger conversation about you know, what Citrus looks like in China, and what, but we expect that from there, right? But what within the within the West, Europe is where you're already seeing these sort of conversations again, going after you know, again, I think podcasts being I, th- I think one of the most most fascinating because it's such a, a such a wide industry now. Um, but you know, we saw it during COVID the the normalization, the mainstream of some of the most radical, anti approved science stuff, things that were going that were being discussed on X and Twitter and and you know, and, and all these you know, platforms, which, you know, if, if you're involved with it on a daily basis, they they seem like they're driving the conversation, but most people still don't, you know, are not active users there. It's when you go on a Joe Rogan podcast, when you have these platforms that have millions of regular listeners that are outpacing Traditional television, right? Um, the fact that that was seen as such a a radical dissident platform that must be again conversation about, about regulating it. Um, I think that's where the new wave is going to come come in, um, and how that looks like going forward, we'll, we'll see. I mean, you know, if we're looking for some positive aspects of it, um, within the American example, we can see that Joe Rogan, you know, he was not punished for having you know people like you know peter mccullough our good friend um on his podcast instead he got a whole he got a big you know a, a, even a better deal with spotify when contracts came up he's going to be able to not only ha- make the money that he was making with spotify but actually um you stream his content on other platforms like x and youtube and the like and so there because there is this this genuine market demand for these dissonant voices within the united states um, you know, Tucker seems to be doing quite well with his venture. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll see how you know getting seed money. We'll see how the long term process is there. But there is more demand, more interest, more consumption of information that the media doesn't want. And because they, in many ways, like Assange was kind of ahead of his time, right? If you like, you know, WikiLeaks now would be even a, a bigger driver, I think, of content if if it was in its peak form today. Um, you know, 4chan kind of played this role in, in 2016, um, you know, the ability to to take dissident content, package it within your own YouTube videos, putting in your own Twitter stuff, the entire ecosystem, in spite of all the attempts, in spite of, you know, you know, you know putting out the severed heads in front, you know, you don't want to be this guy. It is failing because the demand for it from the population and so far, so far, um, you know, the, the freedom of speech protections the United States has is stronger than the rest of the world. Again, I, I, I get not working really well for Assange right now, but neither here nor there. Um, and so that's one of the things I think is, is, is fascinating is that as much as the regime tries to tries to fortify itself, the the demand is making that harder and harder to do. And the distrust is growing and growing and growing. And so you know, while I, I don't know if it's going to save Assange, I fully expect for him to, to die in an American prison. He's going to be, I expect him to be extradited and I don't expect him to last that long. Um, it, it was very nice. Grinnell told the Ecuadorian, things, oh, he won't get the death penalty here. Okay, fine. He'll, he'll, he'll just be, you know, he'll, he'll die from, from natural causes very soon. Um, you know, in spite of these horrific examples, I think the long run is still more positive. Um, but we, we shall see if I'm just being overly optimistic on that front.
2: No, I'm definitely, the, this topic, when you really zoom out, does make me optimistic as well, just because I don't see us going back. I'm very influenced by, there's a book from 2014 called The Revolt of the Public by this guy, Martin Gurry, who is like an information space specialist. I think he was was or is associated with Mercatus. Um, But he argues that um, there have been uh, five phases of basically information technology in human history. And whenever that uh, yeah, A phase comes along, so like the alphabet would be one, the printing press, um, broadcast media, stuff like that. Whenever a phase comes along, um, it sort of uh, determines the, the people in power, whoever the ruling class at that time, um, eventually gets kind of a monopoly over that information space, which is why they're the ruling class. But when a phase changes, um, they lose that monopoly. And so he... Uh, argues that specifically with like the printing press coming around, that if you look at things like the Reformation, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, things that happened not long after that uh, fracturing of the old um, information monopoly, that it wasn't so much that there were all these sudden new sentiments coming around, but that the new uncontrolled information environment allowed sentiments that were already there to spread in a way that authorities at the time could not uh, combat effectively. And he argues that the internet is, that we're currently going through um, a phase change that uh, is in a lot of ways, very similar to the printing press coming around. Cause even with broadcast media back in the 20th century, um, they, you know, there were some big changes with like radio and TV coming around, um, but because you know, the airwaves were controlled by the government, their, their control over that um, was never really threatened. But these days it is. And um, so it's not really that uh, you know, everybody was largely OK with how things were back in the 80s or whatever. And then suddenly all these sentiments changed. But the internet really allowed those sentiments to spread. And it really allowed people to see that, hey, there are other people out there that also think this is all crazy, that, that the, these dissonant sentiments are not only, not only do they exist, but they're popular. And that that is something that, just because of the way that technology works, the, the government is, I think, going to fight to the nail, or you know, the, the ruling class, the political class, um, the establishment, whatever you want to call it, they're going to fight to the nail. But it's hard to see how they can really reverse these pretty fundamental changes. I think they can do a lot of damage. Um, and I think they are doing a lot of damage, and it's certainly going to be a fight. Um, or is a fight, but um, in the long term, I'm quite optimistic uh, with you know our ability to engage uh, with these, uh, I don't even like really calling it dissident um, information. It's more like <laughs> realistic information that's not propaganda. And sure, there is some propaganda out there, but just alternatives really. Um, alternatives that don't have a specific agenda, which is I wanna stay in power. Um, so yeah, I I too am optimistic in the long term. I, I would say I'm a little bit. I, I kind of disagree. I I would say it's more likely than not is my prediction that Assange does walk at some point. I just don't see how they can throw him in a cage without there being um, a huge backlash. It seems like the people that really uh, are following this, uh, they they really care and want him out. I just don't see the political capital there. I don't think it's super likely. I just say more likely than not. Um, but yeah, it's been terrible for him so far. Um, th- th- that's just a disaster, this whole story. But yeah, in, in the long term, big picture, I am an optimist.
1: And Ryan, it's worth noting that, uh, of course, one platform that will always be open to to dissident voices is Mises.org. And it, we have a very we have we've undergone a massive change to the website. Um, so if you want to read uh, Connor's great article on Assange, um, you can see it with our new format that uh, is uh, getting some good reviews out there. We've now got the Power & Market blog uh, right at the top uh, top half of the page. A lot of great content coming out on there these days. And so I just wanted to give a shout out uh, to, to the great tech team at the Institute as uh, we continue to try to adapt and make sure that we, we are uh, one of the top platforms there for, for that uh, dissident, true information that the regime doesn't want you to read either.
0: Well, and also be sure and click on the subscribe link at the top of the page at the new Mises.org so you can get uh, all of our information, podcasts, new articles directly in your inbox via email as well. And this, of course, uh, is a little bit more reliable as a uh, way of direct communication. You don't have to let it be filtered through uh, whatever the oligarchs approve at Facebook Um, or at YouTube, you can instead just get it emailed directly from us. So, yes, check out the new page. And with all that, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode of Radio Rothbard. Thank you, Connor O'Keefe. Thank you, Tho Bishop. And thank you to all our listeners. We'll be back next week with another one, so we'll see you next time.